to me, the ultimate final boss in this whole trend of free-to-play and internet and casual gaming is this concept of multiplayer online games, the World of Warcraft of the world. And I have a very personal relationship with this. My first game that I was very obsessed by to the point where I lost sleep, I got in fights with my parents, I was extremely drawn into this was MUDS, multi-user domain, where you'd sort of telnet into a server and then you type in text and it gives you back text, but then it tells you a story and you have role-playing games and you talk to other characters who are humans and who are NPCs. And um, it gets you into this world that is online, that is communal, but you're also playing this game. And something that you find is that you originally came to play a game, but then you find people that you like and, and you just relate to them with their online identities and you, your friends kind of, you, and then you stay for that. And uh, I think that's exactly what you find. You, you come for the content and you stay for the community. This is the story of MUDs to MMORPGs. But, you know, going back to your initial question, which was sort of, how did we make this transition into multiplayer? I really think that it was the MUDs that hmm. got us there, right? The multi-user dungeons from the PC era. And really, those things in many ways go back all the way to the 1970s. They almost arose kind of at the same time as computer networking itself, which, again, shows you that people want to play games, right? People invent computers, they invent computer networks, and the next thing they do is make games for them. And MUDs were a real example of that. And so the multi-user dungeons were typically in those days text-based. If you've ever played like the Zork games from Infocom, now Activision, you would be very familiar with this concept of you're at a house, turn left, go east, you know, whatever, like the text commands. As the MUDs evolved through the 80s and into the 1990s, there was the rise of a play pattern that I think is one of the most important in the history of video gaming, and that is the Dicky Mud. Um, the Dicky Mud was invented in Copenhagen in 1990, and it's really, I would say, the least understood and the most persistent of the multiplayer gameplay patterns. It's the hack and slash inventory exploration role playing game, which, like I said, persists all the way to today. So, you know, we've seen 32 years now of evolution of that play pattern. And again, very few people recognize its origins, but that's really where it came from, right? It came from early MUDs. And wow. it's actually the code base for the DQ MUD has showed up from time to time in popular modern games, which is, again, quite remarkable. I, you, you and I have talked about DQ MUD before. I've never played with that, and I was probably an infant when that initially came out. And I've looked into it since, and I've, I'm like, wow, this is a really interesting play pattern, but it's hard for me to imagine ever playing a text-based game. But you can, when, when you experiment with it or when you observe it, you can see those clear through lines of in, in the games that we play today. You know, you saw kind of one of the earlier expressions of this, of the mud, and, and really one of the earlier attempts to turn it graphical and make it online in a game called Island of Kesmai. This was back in the mid-80s. There was a group of people in Charlottesville, Virginia, of all places, who created this online, massively multiplayer video game, basically. It's like the first of the MMOs. I'd call it sort of a proto-MMO, because it wasn't particularly massive, but it was multiplayer. <laughs> and it was made, again, by this tiny company in Charlottesville, and it was a fantasy role-playing dungeon crawl, right? A graphical mud, if you will, and it was actually quite popular for its day. And it had, unfortunately, a business model, that, again, limitations of business model coming back to haunt us. 
that were really brought from the fact that it was part of these dial-up internet services in the mid-80s, which were incredibly expensive. So, I mean, you were paying for CompuServe or AOL or some of these other services, Genie, that were hosting these games, $6 an hour for a low-speed connection and $12 an hour for a high-speed connection. You know, you think at the time even, which we would now consider outrageous, you were paying a dollar an hour for the $60 for 60 hours of gameplay paradigm that dominated during the packaged goods era, right? So you take that and you multiply that by by 6 or 10 or 12 in order to get to what it costs to play Island of Kesmai on an hourly basis. But despite the fact that it was clunky and slow and buggy and horrible latency because these early dial-up networks, we weren't talking, you know, today we were talking about I mean, I have a one ping on my <laughs> on my home network right now, right, yeah. with, a, with fiber. In those days, you were talking about one second, not one millisecond. I mean, we're talking about three orders of magnitude difference in latency between where we are today and where we were back then. So, I mean, this was horrible by today's standards, right? And yet, people played it. And why did they play it? Because it had these attributes of community, of competition, of eventfulness. And we'll talk about it in a little bit more detail, but... It was a forever game in prototypical form. Was Helen Kesma technically like one of the first online games? Like, because again, up until this point, and this is mid 1980s, you really are playing, you know, Pong or these other things. Maybe you're going to the local arcade. This feels like sort of that first unlock of, hey, you, you're paying this money, but the reason why you're paying this money is you're finally playing with other users on the internet. Yeah, it wasn't the first, but it was really one of the first attempts to kind of popularize it, right? And, 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 and you look at the MUDs, they existed in the 1970s, but you were playing them on a teletype, essentially, right? I mean, like you were looking at printouts. Yep. So you, you kind of needed that evolution of a viable online service that was kind of mass market, like AOL, like CompuServe, right? In order to kind of get enough people online and out of a university context where most of these MUDs were developed. So again, while not the first, I think it was one of the first to really popularize. And it was certainly one of the first that came up on my radar screen when I was growing up in the business. It wasn't particularly deep as a game. It was dynamic. And I think that was really important. Did it have state-of-the-art graphics? No. I mean, it had what today we would even think is kind of pathetic for 8-bit. It was not particularly good, but it worked. And it worked because it solved that problem that people had with the games of the day, which was it brought people together online. It was a true multiplayer game and not in the sense of you and your friends sitting on the couch playing Madden, but in the sense of a community of users that were all getting together for a common purpose. And I remember talking to the island of Kesmai developers um, later on when I was in the business uh, in the early 90s and talking to them about some of their early experiences with the game. And I was like, you know, when did you know that it was working? And they would say to me, oh, we knew it was working when we would go in at four o'clock in the morning in God mode and we would see 10 people in a room at four o'clock in the morning and we would go in and see what they were doing and they were sharing chocolate chip cookie recipes. <laughs> and then a dragon would come into one of the dungeon rooms that they were in and one or more of them would say, oh, we'll go and dispatch the dragon and they would go and kill the dragon and then they would come back and talk about cookie recipes. And again, they weren't there for the gameplay. They were there for the community. It's funny because so many people talk about games today, primarily through the play pattern itself. But I think a lot of people do misunderstand that community is such a huge part of this. You know, I play League of Legends with my friends and 
for me, that's where I go and hang out with my friends on the internet. And I imagine in that time, it had to be really magical because that's one of the first times that they are really hanging out and meeting new people on the internet that have similar interests. Yeah. You know, the finding nerds at that time, I can't imagine it was that easy. No, it wasn't. And we take that for granted, really. It was a lot harder and a lot more isolated to be a nerd back in the, in the 80s <laughs> than it was today. And sure, like you said, today, it wouldn't be that weird to think that you could ultimately get married to somebody who you met online. But when in the 80s, when people were meeting in games like Island of Kesmai and getting married, it was a big deal. That was like a really weird and, you know, it was newsworthy. Yeah, I mean, it's also the 1980s, which is just incredible because like I, I didn't start using the Internet until... I don't know, 1998 or something like that. And so this is really early in, in all of this. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, this is crackly modem time, right? <laughs> you know, this is 2800 baud for those, for those older people listening. So when I was at Disney, you know, in the early 90s, it was a really interesting time. Clearly, digital was on the horizon. And there was an interesting thinker there named Bran Farron who was encouraging the Disney staff to think about digital in a really holistic way. Like, he encouraged even back then, and this was the early 90s, to digitize all the Disney characters so that they could be used in video games and in online services and all these other things, really ahead of his time, Brand Farron, in terms of how he was thinking about the, the future of the Disney brands. And I was a lawyer at the time, and they assigned me early on to do things like look and see if they had the rights to put some of their older movies on DVD because we had to like digitize the Eugene Ormandy and the Philadelphia Orchestra from Fantasia and put it on a DVD. And frankly, we didn't have the rights to do that at the time. And we had wow. to go back to find the estate of Eugene Ormandy to get them <laughs> to assign us the digital rights. And it changed the way we negotiated contracts because we had to think about a future in which we needed to be able to put this intellectual property on all forms of media regardless. Again, lots of really interesting changes at foot and very invisible to the outside world, but very important inside of the Disney organization. We were talking a lot internally, the people there who really knew a lot about advanced technology, people from the Imagineering group, people from Disney television and from some of these other parts of the company. And there was a little group of us who spent time talking about the future. And I was convinced from spending time with those people that this was going to be the future, that these online services were going to work. So I went, put together a proposal about building an online theme park. Hmm. Uh, 1992, 1993, went to my boss's boss's boss at the time, Larry Murphy, who was running the strategic planning department at uh, Disney and pitched him this idea of building a digital theme park. And he sort of patted me on the head and, you know, was like, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of clever or whatever and said no. But I really had this kind of bug in my head. So I quit and wow. found a friend of mine who had worked at Sony in video gaming, but who had come from the MIT Media Lab, where in those early days, the Media Lab really only got started. Now it's an institution. But in those days, it had just graduated its first couple of classes. And she and I got together and specked out this idea to create a massively multiplayer online gaming company. We went to the U.S. military, actually, which was one of the few places where the technology existed to play massively multiplayer games because they were building simulations, which they had a, like the ARPANET back in those days, you know, they had a, they had an idea where they had a protocol that if you supported, you could plug into a network. And there was actually a convention in Albuquerque, New Mexico, 
called IATSEC that I used to go to. And they would hold these simulations on the show floor where people would bring their flight simulators and they would bring their tank simulators and all these other combat simulators. And everybody would plug into the same network and you could play. And it was, it really excited my imagination because I could imagine a future. I mean, you think about it now, it's World of Tanks. Yep. But the technology was so bloated, as you can imagine, right? I mean, these are the people who brought us $1,000 screws for toilets. I mean, these people have no concept of like running on consumer <laughs> hardware. And so I did my best. I went out. I tried to raise money for it. I raised a little bit of money for it, a little seed money, but I couldn't really get it off the ground. But I went and pitched everybody in the industry this idea. And it was really funny because one of the people who I got the most play from was Rich Hilleman at Electronic Arts. Wow. He really wanted to spend a bunch of time with me. And he, those of you who know Rich, he is an absolute legend. This is the Gandalf of video <laughs> game design. I mean, this guy is fucking unbelievable. And back in those days, it was just a real honor to get to pitch him. And he was incredibly patient with me. And he asked me all kinds of really interesting questions that suggested he'd really been thinking a ton about this idea of the massively multiplayer online game. And he passed like everybody else did. And I ended up going to Activision and having an, an interesting career there after I abandoned my fantasy of making an, an MMO. But Rich, little did I know, had been working with Richard Garriott, another of the great legends, because they had just greenlit Garriott's origin systems down in Austin, Texas to make a game called Ultima Online. That's an incredible story. It also, it's funny because you had a glimpse of potentially joining EA in theory instead of going to Activision as well. But talk about some legends at that time. And also the foresight, credit to you that you were thinking about building a digital amusement park, you know, in 1992 for Disney. That's incredible. In case anyone was wondering, I used to play Heroes of the Lance, which uh, was a fun mud. I don't actually know what um, it did. I think it was like a Singapore-centric mud for some reason, but it was like a fork of um, some other more popular thing. The, the other popular mods at the time were Ard Wolf, I think, and then there were some others, but those never really felt welcoming to me. Heroes of the Lands did. I played it for, I think, two years, and my name was Tanker, which I've now doxed. <laughs> if you played HOTL 20 years ago, let me know. 